Professor Allen's Comics Reading Journal for the month of February 2023. Welcome to episode 93 of this podcast series. The concept of the show is to just have a brief chat about whatever comic books I've read since the last time we had one of these brief chats, which should make this pretty much the comic books I read during February. These were listed in weekly blog posts at eyesandearsblog.blogspot.com, and I regularly repost them on my Facebook and Twitter so you can find those. But those lists don't really constitute spoilers for this podcast, because those are just lists. And here, we give you a little more review, a little more critique, and a little more discussion. But first, we have a little bit of feedback. Both Sir Luke and Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, confessed to being sarcastically shocked, shocked, shocked that I would read so many sci-fi comic books in a month. Well, yes, fellas, I did read a lot of sci-fi comics and spoilers for later in this episode, but there were so many that a few actually made their way into my February reading, because it's important to balance out your rockets and lasers with your huggies and smooches. And social media support for the January episode came from Shane Kelly, Sir Manuel Carmona, Joe Baldwin, Karen from Between the Pages, James from Karen, Billy D from Magazines and Monsters, Ed Moore from The Super, Superman Super Show, Derek, Derek WC, that fan hole, Vic and Phoenix, Clinton from The Days of High Adventure, Herbie Herb, The Alien Channel, Kirk Spencer, Big Five Army, Jeremiah the Notorious, JJG, Chris the Charlton Hero, Chris Lydon Seven, Sir Iowa's Joe, who's half of the 21st Century Boys, The Telltale Mind, and another Chris, Chris Ouellette, from the spiritual lens. And now, on to the comics that I read last month, and as we do on this show, categorize the books that I read. And first, are those that I read specifically for podcasting, the homework books. So for next month's Doom Speak, I read Astonishing Tales 2 and 3, both the Doctor Doom parts, and also, in an act of benevolent service that Doom himself would approve of, I also read the Kazar parts. And comics, I read just to listen along with podcasts. Getting to be a good number of these most months because the DC Infinite app, and thank you to DC Comics-themed podcasters who give me a chance to follow along with comic book podcasts, which is one of my favorite things to do. So, too, listen along with the Batman Family Reunion Show. I read Batman Family 14, in which Batgirl and Robin team up to save the original Bat-Woman from... Well, from melting away to nothingness, which I wonder in retrospect was a reference to her part in history. 
That issue also featured a story featuring the one and only Man Bat. And we'll follow along with Billy D's excellent show, The Brave and the Bob. Episodes 16 and 17, I read Brave and the Bold 98 and World's Finest 251. The Brave and the Bold issue had Phantom Stranger in it and told a story of Batman's great friends, who we'd never seen of before, but who were in fact involved with satanic rituals. You would think Batman would have better taste in best friends, but not on planet Haney, he doesn't. That issue was extra-sized and reprinted. The Phantom Stranger first appearance, and also a pretty fun Challengers of the Unknown story. An excellent issue all the way around. And this month, we actually have more new comics that we read right off of the digital shelves. Thanks to the Hoopla digital app. Something is Killing the Children, 27 through 29, in which the hunter named Cutter arrives in town, and that spells trouble for our protagonist, Erica Slaughter. Cutter has convinced a local sheriff that she is a federal agent. Spoiler, she's a liar. But that's how she gets close to Slaughter. And seeing as Cutter has killed all the deputies and pinned that on Erica, Erica's trouble has just gotten a whole lot worse. But the House of Slaughter itself is moving on its way to the action, and they might actually tilt the situation into Erica's favor as the inner workings of the houses themselves become more and more labyrinthine and unpredictable. From Boom, we have the penultimate issue of the Keanu Reeves comic, Berserker, number 11. A very fast-paced and action-packed issue that didn't push a lot of the plot forward or answer questions, but it did lay the groundwork for a two-fisted finale. And from Titan, another penultimate issue, Eight Billion Genies, number seven, in which we look at the first eight decades after G-Day, when every person on Earth received their own genie and their own wish. The human population at this point is well under a billion, and there are even fewer genies remaining, as they only grant the one wish. Which means that they, the genies, and more importantly the wishes, have become a valuable, limited resource. And like every limited, valuable resource, because supply and demand is true under any economic system you attempt to install in any society, they become very, very valuable. And they become the causes of contention and of war. This issue was extra length, and I would not be surprised if the last one is as well, because they have promised to end this at issue 8, and it seems like maybe they aren't inclined to squeeze that finale into 22 pages if they don't have to, and that's a situation that works for me. And then on to the general comic reading that I did. Derek, Derek WC, sent a Christmas care package that with some works by Aaron Lepresti, including Power Cubed 1-4 through 4 from Dark Horse, 
We have a kid who on his 18th birthday learns the dramatic truth that his dad is an alien. And when the dad gets abducted on that very day, the kid is left alone, his mom having passed previously, with a magical alien cube of power, which attracts the attention of enemies and allies, or at least potential allies. There is definitely some intensity in the story, but the art has a lightness to it, and there's a bit of humor every four or five pages, which works really well. A very enjoyable series. He also sent the Black and White Punisher magazine, number one, a Stephen Grant story, in which Frank Castle is spending some quality time in the joint. And he is locked in there with a lot of people who want him dead. Or maybe they are locked in there with him. And Punk Mambo, number one, a voodoo miniseries from Valiant, circa 2019. Cullen Bunn presents a compelling pink-haired punk lady. And artist Adam Gorham gives us a scary and colorful version of the spirit world. Good start to a story. And Sir Manuel Carmone of Truthful Comics, whose Kickstarter comic met its goal within something like 48, 72 hours? Excellent work, Manuel. He sent a Christmas care package, which included Justice League of America 20. This is from the 2018 uh, run. A strange mix of characters, including Lobo, Adam, Black Canary, and Killer Frost, taking on Prometheus, but mostly, after that story wraps up, they take on each other. Having Lobo in a group does tend to amp up the interpersonal drama, shall we say. Not a bad read. An X-Force 12, straight out of the 90s. Not my favorite era of comics, but give Liefeld and Nicias a credit. This is an energetic comic, I will say that. But the colors. Oh, my eyes! My eyes! The colors. And a long run from DC. Infinity Inc., 38 through 42, and also 46 and 53. That last one was, in fact, the last one for this title. And I have to say, I don't think I've ever said this out loud, but I think I really like Mr. Bones. Rhyming characters can be troublesome, but Roy and Dan Thomas did a solid job giving him some couplets that worked, both in rhyming and in context. The best parts are when his rhymes don't really work out well, someone in the cast will often point that out. These were more drama than action stories, and that works if you know what to expect. And there were lots, and lots of words per page, did we mention Roy Thomas? But good stories with Fury, the new Harlequin, and also Solomon Grundy. Pretty good reads. And Venom, License to Kill number 3, written by Larry Hama. I watched the two Venom movies last year and enjoyed them more than I expected, especially the second one. I know. I was surprised, too. And this one, in which Venom was an agent for the good old U.S. of A., we had good action and a decent amount of the humor that I liked in the movies. Justice League Task Force 5-8, through which covered two stories, 
one in which Bronze Tiger and Green Arrow do some dirty work in the Caribbean for Bruce Wayne in a Knight's Quest tie-in. The second story was actually quite good, a story starring many of the female lead characters from DC, including John Jones, the Martian Manhunter. I know what you're thinking. But he can reshape his body in any way he wished, so... Well, yes, that happened. Not sure it would fly in these enlightened days, but it was a good story, a nice mix of action with bits of humor. The power of Shazam 22 guest-starring Batman. They team up to stop an evil pharmaceutical executive, which I think is not what we're supposed to say anymore. I I think post-COVID, aren't drug companies good guys now? I'm sorry, I think I might be canceled just for saying that. And from 2011, Starman Congorilla number one, which did tie into a Justice League story. But this issue as a standalone worked for me. Because not only did it have a talking monkey, a classic DC staple in Congo Bill slash Congorilla, it also had a few other talking monkeys and Animal Man. To me, just as a one-off, this was a fun, if insubstantial, read but excellent. And then between Manuel and Derek, I got a trio of related issues. Marvel Comics Presents numbers 130 and 34. So a total of 12 stories across these three issues. Two Wolverines, of course, two Black Panthers, two Cold Blood. I know. Who? And then one each from Excalibur, Cap, Silver Surfer, Shang-Chi, Man-Thing, and Lear, Lord of Lightning. I know. Who? A couple of these were one-off complete stories, and that helps. And the other ones, all in all, weren't too bad. From Kirk Spencer, a.k.a. Big Five Army, wrapping up a very strange series from Scout Comics, Frank at Home on the Farm, number four, about a World War I vet who comes home to the family farm to find his family missing. And then the animals start talking to him. Or do they? It's a good job of portraying someone slowly losing touch with reality. It's a sad story, but a solid comic. From Sir Dr. Ange, Ted McKeever's Metropole Number 1 from Epic from 1991. If you have an idea in your mind of what an epic comic from 1991 should look like, what their house style is, then you have a really good idea of what this comic looks like. It is the first issue of a longer story, and so it's kind of tough to summarize, but it was an interesting read, and like I said, it fit my vision of the mold of an epic title. And Ron Sadowski, Ron, just Ron, said in Fantastic Four, 5 Yancey Street, number one, from just a few years back. In true Scooby-Doo style, the bad guys are evil real estate developers upping the rents because of the presence in the FF in the neighborhood. And then on the last page, it totally turns around as the true star of the series arrives. That's right. Like all good comic books, with the words fantastic 
and four in their name, it turns out to be really a Doctor Doom comic. Yes! And a birthday present that our family friend Lynn gave me back in November, the graphic novel adaptation of the first Percy Jackson novel, The Lightning Thief. I haven't read the book or seen the movie. Somehow they just missed me. But I know the basics of the story. The mythological monsters, the gods and titans of Olympus, all that landing on the back of one boy, Percy. And this adaptation seemed solid. It did the job, at least. It presented a story that just in and of itself made sense outside of having knowledge of the underlying property. It had action, had character development, laid groundwork, did everything that I imagine that first novel did. It's an enjoyable read. And from the big box of cheap trades that I got around Christmas from SourcePoint Press, I read Backfired 1-5, through which I enjoyed despite the very troublesome premise. It was one of my pet peeves, one of the plot points that always raises my suspicions, exists here because this is written by a writer, writing about a writer whose issues revolve around writing. We have a character who is a comic book writer, who has been tasked to pitch his story as a movie but can't come up with an acceptable Hollywood ending. And since his focus is on his comics and his characters, that has led him to ignore his personal life and his family. So he ends up with more on his plate than he can handle. From Pulp Reality, Echo Lands, number one from just a few years back. This is a landscape-formatted book. So there are opportunities for the art to look different, for pages and panels to be of unexpected dimensions, unusual shapes. And it's a story that has a fables feel to it, the lead character being a lady in a big red hood, in a San Francisco teeming with magical characters and characteristics. I'm not dying to continue with it, but it was an interesting good start to a series. There were three for a dollar boxes on the last day of GalaxyCon back in December, and from there, I found a pair of futuristic comics taking place in the far future of 18 years ago. From Eternity Comics, Street Heroes, 2005, issues one and two, which focuses on the law enforcement professionals of a world that has required powered individuals to be registered with the government. And when they don't, these human cops, these street heroes, have to deal with it. It's a gritty black-and-white title with an interesting, if not wholly original, idea. Carolina Comics and more also had a three-for-a-dollar box, and from there, I grabbed a trio of issues of The Black Hood 5, 8, and 10 from the Impact comics line. I have liked some of the Black Hood stories I've read before, and they must have been from an earlier version of the title because these ones just seemed kind of blah, kind of safe, 
kind of boring. Because the Black Hood can go a number of directions, but boring should not be one of them. However, that's the great thing about discount bins. I spent a buck total on these three. So really, how disappointing could they have been? And if 33 cents is a bit much for you, a sentiment I wholly understand, from the quarter bin sale at Half Price Comics, I nabbed an entire series. St. Mercy, one through four, a genre blend of historical fantasy. Think the Inca religion from around the 1500s. It's that and Western, the rest of it taking place in the modern age of the late 1800s. So back in the day, an Incan sacrifice went just a little wrong. And we end up with a bunch of cursed gold that a family has protected in the ensuing centuries. But some real bad dudes get wind that there is some secret gold stashed nearby, and they come after Mercy and her family, and things don't go well, really, for anybody involved. Fascinating story with, at the risk of getting too darkness to light here, a fascinating religious storyline as well. And from the DCU app, wrapping up, one of my favorite series from the 70s, Secret Society of Supervillains 13 through 15. I had all of these in my collection back in the day and have thoroughly enjoyed this digital revisit. Wrapping up the series, we have Captain Comet fighting pretty much single-handedly the Secret Society the Crime Syndicate, and the Injustice Gang. And the Earth-3 Lois Lane was falling pretty hard for him. So perfect here in Romance Comics Month, just saying. Now, the problem with the DC explosion, of which SSOSV was a victim, was that the guillotine fell so fast on titles that storylines were unable to wrap up or had to find another home in which to do so. Which brings us to Justice League of America 166 through 168, which does wrap up the SSOSV event and era. The Secret Society pulls off a body swapping scenario with the Justice League after an in story explanation of why six months have passed in publishing time. Something about a space-time vortex thing. But a good story wrap-up. Glad they got this opportunity. It was a fun era, and SSOSV was a very fun title. Now, this next one, I'm not really sure where I got it from, but it was a concept I liked in theory, though I'd never actually read any of them at the time. This is Wednesday Comics number 6. From 2009, it was fun opening up the newspaper to read the comics. That had a fun throwback feel. I am shaky at best on anthology comics, and getting one page, albeit a full good-sized page, a big page, per story, would never have worked for me in the long term, but again, the whole thing was fun. 
I liked the Batman story because I like Azzarello and Rizzo. And the Metal Men and Metamorpho pages were fun as well. I know I should look this up, but I do wonder if these are on the app because a few of these stories I'd consider following up on. And some kids' books that I read mostly from Pulp Reality, a few from Sir Rob Lance, Archie's Pals and Gals 61 and 91, Sad Sack Laugh Special 32, Archie's TV Laugh Out 62, World of Archie 208, Daffy Duck 31 and 34, Veronica 103, and Beep Beep the Roadrunner 79. There were more, but you'll hear about them in the following section. Of these, Daffy Duck is my favorite character. And his comics are, generally speaking, pretty solid. I like that you can put him up against any of the classic WB protagonists, or antagonists, I guess, Yosemite Sam or Elmer Fudd. But you can also put him in any type of classic you know, sort of sitcom situation. So in these two issues, we have him learning to be a lifeguard. We have him stumbling into a witch's house. My favorite is when he decides to take a load off and land on a promising-looking desert isle, only to find that, and what are the odds of this? Yosemite Sam has been stranded on the same island for years. And then the punchline at the end is that Daffy is so annoying that when the two of them are rescued, Sam decides he'd rather stay on the island than spend one more minute with Daffy, even if it is on a Coast Guard rescue vehicle. All right, time to take a break here. And when we come back, we'll talk about the seasonal reading that I did in February. And spoilers, there's going to be a lot of hugging and kissing. Imagine a podcast that celebrates the things we love. Why spend time being so angry and cynical about our fandoms? Join me, the Irredeemable Shag, for a show where we're just trying to be happy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast. Our discussions focus on a variety of geeky subjects that we're passionate about. While the topics will be ever-changing, our focus will be on science fiction, comic books, what it means to be a geek in this world, and other nostalgia-fueled ideas. Life is short. Focus on the positive. Find your joy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast, part of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. And we're back to talk mostly about seasonal reading, which for February means hashtag Romance Comics Month. These were acquired from a variety of sources, and I'll do my best to identify those as we go. Listed more or less in alphabetical order. And starting with Archie. They're a good amount, mostly revolving around the greatest love triangle in comics history. First, the more general books about the gals in Archie's life. Betty and Veronica, 123 and 184. Betty and Veronica Digest, 71 and 205, and Betty and Veronica Double Digest, 154, 183, and 215. All of those digests 
came in Ron Sadowski's Christmas Care Package. And let that be a lesson. Digests make excellent packing materials. And then really, digging into that love triangle, I read three digital collections. Pep Digital 48, Team Betty. Pep Digital 49, Team Veronica. And Pep Digital 75, Heartbreakers. And the amazing thing was that I only caught a few crossovers among all these collections, meaning stories that were anthologized in multiple of these various digests, physical and digital. I think it's interesting to note how different the stories of these two characters can be, how they've developed their own vibe over the years. Veronica has the advantage of having a cast of characters around her. She has secondary characters. She has Smithers, the butler, of course, her dad, as well as a number of different settings, Lodge Industries, the manor, and anywhere the family chooses to go on vacation. So that is where her stories tend to come from. Betty, on the other hand, we have a little bit with her family, but not nearly as much as we have with Veronica. And there's no equivalent of Lodge Industries. So for her stories, many of them come from her many interests and hobbies. We have Betty, the sports fan. Betty, the star of every sport. Betty, the babysitter. Betty, the auto mechanic. Betty, the baker. Betty, the chef, just to name a few. So that's where her stories tend to come from. But let's get to the key question here, and I will answer it. For long-term happiness in a satisfying relationship, it's hashtag Team Betty. And don't even get me started with Cheryl or Sabrina. Come on now. A nod does need to be given to Modern Archie, which introduced the interracial couple of Archie and the new African-American version of Josie. That being said, I do have to say that the best, best, best couple in all of the Archie world does come from the classic tales of the Pussycats. Because you may remember that they have an Alan M. in the cast of Josie and the Pussycats, as well as a Valerie. And that sounds to me like the type of pairing that could last for, I don't know, 35 years and counting. And from the Archie romance series, Katie Keene, 14 from 1986. Not bad stories, but the key to this issue, to this title, is the opportunity it gave readers to design clothes and other items for the characters. This is Dial H for Hero taken to the extreme with, are you sitting down? Because I don't think you're ready. More than 75 reader names given in this issue. It's crazy. It's almost as many names as I read out during an average episode of the Comics Reading Journal. It's absurd. And then moving from the wholesomeness of Archie, we get the 
more questionable, shaky, strange, angel love, number four. I read number one a few years ago, so when I saw this one for cheap at Pulp Reality, I could not resist. We are past the dramatic cocaine ending of issue one, and in this one we have Angel engaged in standard romantic shenanigans, all in all a pretty humorous love story. And then going with a very interesting take on love, we have an image book from about five years ago, I think, Death of Love, which tells the story of a down-on-his-luck guy, always unlucky in love, who decides to take the strange pill that the strange lady gives him at the bar, which, as you know, always goes well. No, wait. That's right, it never goes well. In this case, Philo gets the ability to see cupids. They are everywhere. They don't create love, by the way. Love is already everywhere. The big guy likes love. He kind of is love. What the cupids do is help love along. When they see the spark between two people, they fire their little arrows and fan the flame. But Philo gets on the wrong side of the Cupids, who are not as cute as you'd think when they're in battle mode. They are related to the gods, after all, created by Eros, so, yeah, they have a lot of power. And when they get angry, those cutie pies get really, really angry. It is a wild story, and as weird and strangely violent as it is, I dug it. I hope that doesn't say the wrong things about me and love. Hmm. (laughs) And an all-ages book I picked up last year in a boombox grab bag. Jonesy, 11, from 2017. Jonesy is a teen gal who has secret powers. Secret love powers, that is. She can cause people to love each other or to love something. Think of it as a kid-safe version of the Purple Man. It's a strange power, if you think about it too hard. And in this issue, a kid from the next town over also has love powers. And their confrontation is not filled with love. And from E.C., From 1949 and 1950, Modern Love 1 through 8, which I read via the Hoopla digital app. First off, the art was really, really good. So much better than the superhero stories I've seen from the same era. Detailed. Uh, Everybody looks different. And yet they all look good, except the ladies, because they look great. Stories had some similarities, but they were all solid straight romance stories, and they all ended happy, but one really stands out. The final story of the final issue, because these eight issues represent the total run of the title. In that final story, the publisher of a comic book company falls in love, and as a result, stops publishing crime stories, and instead publishes Nothing but romance books. And of course, doing that, his comic company goes bankrupt, and his beautiful girlfriend, mm, she leaves him. 
It's the perfect going away story for a romance comics title. I absolutely loved it. I was looking for romance books on Hoopla and stumbled across some manga that fit the criteria. No Guard Wife, one through three, which is an independent manga originally released as a webcomic and then in print via crowdfunding. This means it won't be a sprawling, ongoing, thousands of pages long epic like some manga can become. And this is presented in the format of an American comic in terms of of page count and the overall length of the storyline. I think there were maybe seven issues total, something like that. In this, in, in one through three, we have a young married couple dealing with all the relational ups and downs of that, the questions, the doubts, the love, the fun, and all that kissing. They're married... And so there is a lot of kissing and, you know, other stuff. Overall, it's a very cute story along with this mature content, quote-unquote. I enjoyed these, and if I remember, I plan to pick up more of these next month in Global Comics Month. Then a couple from Charlton, Secret Romance 17 which featured three stories of romance with, spoilers, secrets. Like the trio of ladies who hire a boat captain to take them for a week-long cruise when it turns out that the captain is, surprise, the brother of one of the ladies whose plan it was to set him up with one of her gal pals. This also contained one story that I posted a panel from on Twitter, which involved one fella giving another one a black eye to prove that he loves the gal in question more than the other guy. And also from Charlton 1974's Time for Love. Solid, standard stuff. But the most interesting bit was the circulation statement, which showed that even in the mid-70s at the end of the romance boom, a second-tier publisher like Charlton could sell 120,000 copies of Time for Love of the just over 200,000 that they printed. Now, those were pretty low numbers back in those days, although about what Charlton averaged. But now, just about every comic published would love to have numbers like that. And from DC, continuing a series I started last February, Young Heroes in Love, 6 through 11, there was actually a little bit of superheroics in here. But the key is more the way in which the stories are told than the stories themselves. Every issue ends with a dramatic soap operatic cliffhanger, and there are light moments sprinkled throughout. My favorites were related to action in foreign countries. A notation that the dialogue had been translated with a thick accent, for example. I can see why this had a limited shelf life, 18 issues in total, I think. But I have to admit, I've enjoyed it more than I suspected I would. And I am looking forward to reading more of these, probably the rest of these, next February.
and that was a good collection of Kissy Kissy books. Of all the genres, this is the one that I have the least of and is the one that gets the most repetitive to me. But this year's batch were solid, and a few were excellent. Next month seems like a bit of a change of pace, but there will definitely be some overlap with this month when, as we said, we'll do some hashtag global comics month reading. But the first thing we have to do before jumping the next month is jump to last month. Because I had so many sci-fi comics on the stack that I didn't get to them all. So I did have one more set here to talk about from the sci-fi world, from a stack of these that Kirk Spencer sent a while back. Nexus, 19 through 24, by Mike Barron and Steve Rude, although Keith Giffen did the art in one issue. This continues to be a terrific series. We get a bit of a status quo change as Nexus confronts the Merc, the being who gives him his powers, and also the bad dreams and the headaches that go with his powers. So it's a nice reiteration of the premise of the series, or a a reminder of the origin, while also allowing the series to go a few different directions, because after the confrontation, the status quo does change a bit. I was less enamored with the Badger crossover issues than I was with the solo stories, but that's the risky run being a part of a small indie comics line. So I have some more of these in the stack, and I look forward to getting back to them more often. And I think that's everything. In terms of my favorite reads of February, Nexus and St. Mercy were both quite good. I really enjoyed Brave and the Bold 98. Eight Billion Genies was excellent, and I am hashtag Team Betty all the way. But in terms of my absolute favorite, I have to go with, and maybe it's just that love is still in the air, or it's how modern a fella I am. But the last issue of EC's romance book, especially the last story, was so memorable, so wonderful. Modern Love, number eight, my favorite read of February. So next month, I'm not really sure what I'm going to be reading other than some international books, of course. Some Tintin, some manga, probably no Alpha Flight. But other than that, who knows? But whatever I do end up reading, I will be here to talk about the books I read in March in an episode that ought to be out in early April. Feel free to let me know what you think of this episode, what you think of any of these books that I mentioned. You can send that feedback via email, relativelygeeky at gmail.com, or as a comment on the Facebook and blog post for this episode, the blog is at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. You can follow the network on Twitter at relatively underscore geek. And of course, the network has its own page on Facebook as well. Come join us. All are welcome. Thanks for listening. And keep the pages turning. <laughs>